This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Cindy Wong Brandt. This is a return appearance for Cindy, who joined me back on episode 47 of the show. In this conversation, we talk about a wide range of topics around her new book that was just released this week called Parenting Forward, How to Raise Children with Justice, Mercy, and Kindness. Cindy and I are both parents, and we touch on a ton of topics throughout this talk. You can find a link to purchase Cindy's book directly in the show links. You'll also find links to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod, and your support would really help me to make this content more feasible, more financially feasible, and expand it into other areas. As we approach episode 100 of the show, I'll be sharing more about my future vision for Exvangelical. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at brchastain, and you can follow the show on Twitter at exvangelicalpod. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash exvangelical, and like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash exvangelicalpod. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Cindy Wong Brandt. She is the author of the new book, Parenting Forward, How to Raise Children with Justice, Mercy, and Kindness. Welcome back to the show, Cindy. Thank you, and thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to actually check in with you before we sort of get into your book. We talked back in 2017 on the show, uh, and one of the and we talked about your sort of journey and the sort of things that we generally talk about on this show. And then afterwards, you sent a newsletter to your subscribers that had this sort of open question of am I exvangelical? You, you weren't at the time, you weren't necessarily sure whether that was something that described you, uh, or not, but things seem to have changed. We've stayed in contact over the last two years, really, uh, almost two years. And it seems like you are using that, the term, uh, to describe yourself. And it's not, to me, that term is the term exvangelical is not really one that's totalizing, like evangelicalism mm-hmm. sort of is. Um, mm-hmm. It's sort of this helpful descriptor, but it doesn't describe your entire sort of being and belief. But nonetheless, um, it was something you, at the time, you weren't so sure about, but it seems like those things sort of have changed. So I'd, I thought it would be good to sort of check in with you and see what's sort of happened in the last year and a half or two that made you really adopt that sort of term for yourself. I don't, I don't remember sending out that newsletter. I think with all things faith shifting, it's all kind of a blur because it's, it's your life. And, and as you rethink things, it's, things are not so easily categorized, um, as you shift from sort of stage to the next. Um, but I, I, but a lot of times it's in looking back that you do see that. So you must have been critical in pushing me over to the next stage of my faith development because I do adopt the term exvangelical for myself frequently. Um, and part of that, to be fair, is just the hashtag um, mm-hmm. trying to kind of garner that community on Twitter. Um, but I actually have found myself, in fact, just emailing someone else the other day who wanted to ask me um, about my faith. And I told them via email that I identify as an ex-evangelical more than anything else. Um, So I have you to thank for giving me that label. Um, What I like about the ex-evangelical label is that it doesn't discard my story of Mm -hmm. coming from evangelicalism, because that's the hard thing about being... um, you know, have kind of shifting out of that system is like, I don't want to take out such critical parts of who I am. Right. Just because yeah. I don't agree with it anymore. It's still part <laughs> right. of me. So I, I like that it in, still includes that. 
but but that it also kind of makes a clean break, which I absolutely want to do at this point in time. Um, I I think that it's just a responsible thing to do to make clear to the world that you cannot um, you can't support that label and all that it stands for um, after seeing the things that it's doing uh, in supporting Donald Trump and and the continuing support for Donald Trump and all that he stands for. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy. I, I feel comfortable adopting this label for myself. I think at the time um, I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with it mainly because I still felt responsible for redeeming it. I still felt mm-hmm. like not so much. I don't know if I ever felt like I could change the system, but more that I, I didn't want to let myself off the hook um, yeah. just by saying, oh, well, I, I, I'm not I'm not part of this anymore. So I'm not responsible when when I had perpetuated some of those harm myself in my past self. And so I think that was what I was holding on to. Um, but I guess I've liberated myself from that mm. responsibility now. I mean, you can see that I'm just very concerned about my personal responsibility <laughs> Uh, in whatever, just trying to be faithful to use an evangelical term. But honestly, I'm just always trying to um, determine what is, you know, what gives me integrity, what's right. the right thing to do, um, how to be faithful to what I believe in. Right. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, I like uh, a lot of what you've said, and I, I don't want this to sort of seem like too much navel gazing at the very top because this show is called Exvangelical and we're talking about the term. But I, I, I do really like what you sort of said about how um, how it was rep- – it, it's representative of sort of where you've come from um, mm-hmm. and acknowledges that but also it indicates that like – that you you repudiate that now, like you those right, sorts of right. things are, and that's to me that's something that uh, that I've mentioned a lot, sort of in conversations and on and off on on Twitter and things like that, as being a, a central sort of thing for the usefulness of that of the term in general. Um, right, and I appreciate uh, it, it's good to hear that 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 sort of resonates with you too, and that um and that it's useful for you in that way. Again, it's yeah. not, I, I know. That and I also want to, I also intentionally use the label because I want to support the community that you're creating. Um, I just want to support evangelical voices, especially in recent years, just the increasing representation in media, which I find is a very worthwhile cause. And so I wanted to put my mm-hmm. voice behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's also... Uh, in that case, in that case, a strategic choice. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool. I, and I appreciate you sort of, uh, taking the time to, to explain that it, it's, it's been, it was, it's great to hear your sort of your thoughts on, on that, because I think a lot of people have sort of have opinions about, about it <laughs> one way or another. Um, right. and it's always interesting to, to, to hear what, what people think. Um, mm-hmm. But let's actually just pivot more towards what you're working on now, which is you are on the cusp of releasing your new book, Parenting Forward, which is very much about parenting and also being a a good parent and also understanding sort of yourself as a parent and uh, oftentimes as someone that's, as you've said, like faith shifted and Mm -hmm. changed your own sort of um, perspective on a lot of big things in your life and your, <laughs> and so it, when I read through your book, uh, and thank you for sending me an advanced copy. Um, it was really, really resonant for me because I've, I'm a parent and I've gone through those things. Um, mm-hmm. w- where I want to start discussing this is really where you start your book, which is with a question. And the question is, what if building a better world, a more just world begins by raising one child, each child with dignity. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'd love to start our conversation about your book by having you tease that out a little bit for us and describe what you mean by raising a child with dignity. 
I get frustrated when I see parenting conversations relegated to women's only place spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like people think of parenting as right the mom's jobs, which of course is the patriarchy speaking. Um, but even just like the larger branding, usually you think of parenting magazines are geared towards women and um, yeah. So, but to me, I feel like parenting is a, a conversation that everyone needs to be engaged in if you care about justice and equality and peace in mm-hmm. the world, because so much of it is, um, that's the building block. Our children are the building blocks of society. Um, and, uh, and there's so much healing that needs to happen in parents so that we break toxic cycles of treating children with justice. Um, and then of course, raising these children who will grow up to be contributing members in society. Like it's just, it's, it's a lot more than that, but it's a very key strategy, um, Mm -hmm. in doing justice is mm-hmm. to talk about parenting. Yeah. Um, and so I like, I want everyone, I want politicians, I want um, religious people, I, <clears throat> I want um, men and fathers and pastors, I want everyone to be engaged in this conversation. That's, that's really my hope is to expand it beyond sort of the mommy blogger, lifestyle blogger space. Right. Yeah. Um, so... I forget what you had another question about raising children with dignity. <laughs> oh no, no, that no, that that was great. So okay. you sort of summarized what what your what your sort of scope is is for the work. My agenda. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um one of the things you talk about specifically and you mentioned just now that that raising children should be the sort the concern for all people. Um uh, right. one of the things that mm-hmm. Uh, another thing early in your book that that you talk about is this sense of parenting that may be less about raising our children and more about raising ourselves. Um, yeah. And as some as someone that you know personally has gone through the again, I'm going to come back to the term that you use of faith shifting and changing mm-hmm. your mind and sort of maybe raising uh raising your child in a way that is different not and maybe not in every way but in some significant ways from the way right. that that we might have been raised right um what what are you what are you trying to evoke and what are you referring to when you say that about raising ourselves as well well i think part of raising children with justice is that we don't try to control them. We don't try to dictate their behavior, which is, I think, a common mistake a lot of parents make. We think that that's our job is to change our our kids' behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm all about empowering our children and giving them the agency to live their own lives and to make their own choices. Um, and so I believe that parenting is done not so much in the direction of our children. We're not parenting at our children. We're parenting ourselves and making ourselves safe people for our children. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, so many people ask me, how do I raise my children to be kind? And I always say, you can't guarantee that your child will be kind. You can't dictate your child's behavior or character but what you can do is that you can be a kind parent to your child. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the part that we can control, right? Um, and so that I think that's part of what I mean is that we want to parent ourselves and cultivate ourselves into people who are who are safe, who um, are supportive, and who are breaking the cycles within ourselves, the the cycles of pain and shame that we've experienced. And for those of us who grew up in in toxic religion, that's Mm -hmm. a huge part of it, right? Is undoing, sort of working on that um, baggage so that we don't pass it on to our children and that we um, give them a better way to grow up than Mm -hmm. the way we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of the sort of themes of your book that that permeates a, a, a couple of chapters is really this 
Um, I'm coming off of a conversation within the last couple of weeks with Jamie Lee Finch, and she she mm. uses this sort of vocabulary of uh, embodiment, you know, of, mm-hmm. of sort of being aware uh, of your of your of your body, and like I think one of the things that a lot of us that have left toxic religion or evangelicalism in particular, there is a sort mm-hmm. of like body mind divide. Um, right. What sort of ways can parents that are coming from that sort of experience that want to not want to break that cycle? What are some of the ways mm-hmm. in which they can they can be aware of this um, of that sort of dichotomy that that we've sort mm-hmm. of experienced where where like the mind body connection was sort of severed? Um, mm-hmm. Again, I'm gonna. I, I am gonna quote your book again. I think I told you before we started talking that I wasn't going to quote ad nauseum no, from your book. Fine. But I really love this 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 phrase that you you have where you said the fire and brimstone salvation I was taught created this separation of our bodies and soul and soul and our souls, our right now life and our afterlife. Um, mm-hmm. And like one of the things that a lot of us in moving beyond evangelicalism. I've sort of discovered is that that's a false dichotomy. It's an, it's sort of a false binary. Mm-hmm. Um, so having gone through this yourself, having come to this sort of realization, how has that awareness of your body and of like teaching a child to be aware of their body? Um, what does that look like? I talk about all all three, not just your body, but I talk about physical, emotional, and spiritual. And mm-hmm. um, I I think I want to see that as an all integrated, an integrated whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, for example, I talk about being aware of our emotions, which is something that we were not raised to do, right? Like girls were not allowed to be angry. Boys were not allowed to be sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think becoming more conscious of our emotions then is also related to being aware of your body because our emotions are manifested often through our, through our body and our mm-hmm. acts. Um, um, and so I, I really think we have to shift the conversation so that we're including all these aspects, um, because our bodies, uh, also don't stand in a vacuum, right? It's, it's also, uh, embodied with our spirits and our minds. Um, but I'm honestly learning myself. I'm still doing that recovery work myself from that severing. So, um, all I can do is offer a vision and a possibility and some alternatives for parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's just constantly reminding us and our children to pay attention, to listen to what's happening. Um, what is your body telling you and to honor it instead of dismissing it. And I think that's just goes a long ways. Um, because growing up evangelical, we were taught to dismiss it and, and just kind of honing our intuition and trusting ourselves that's super radical for us as evangelicals. <laughs> right. I feel kind of silly saying this because it seems so reasonable and just common sense. But for evangelicals, it is radical to say you can trust yourself. You can trust what your body and your mind and your emotions are telling you about who you are about what your convictions are. Mm, um, mm-hmm. You get to believe your own beliefs, right? Like that's, <laughs> I can't, it's it's so healing for me to even say that right. to people because I was never taught that. I was never allowed to believe my own beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, I was indoctrinated. I was told to believe certain things. Um, and so I, uh, yeah, it's exciting to see a new generation of kids being given that freedom. Like, what does it look like if kids are just given the freedom to believe their own beliefs, uh, to yeah. be afforded that right. right. Um, it's, I think it's really thrilling to, to witness to that. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I, my kids, well, one of my children, she tells me often, she's like, mom, I will decide what I believe. Right. And I, I just love hearing that. One of the things that I think a lot of people do sort of experience within evangelicalism is that sometimes they can actually 
be put under some parental pressure to believe something. And a lot of times their own parents may sort of project their own anxiety about what their children believe or don't believe. And mm-hmm. that causes like a little bit of anxiety and uh, a sort of tendency to hide yourself if, as the child in that mm-hmm. sort of circumstance. So I, right. I agree like um, that as a parent giving a child that sort of freedom of expression and, you know, the, the comfort that you're not going to worry about them as they work out their beliefs, beliefs mm-hmm. is that uh, is really healing. Right. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, a, a problem of erasing boundaries in evangelical families. So that's one thing that I've had to reconstruct for myself mm-hmm. is learning how to relate to another human being with proper boundaries um, in that you respect them for what they think and believe and their 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 behavior. Um, but then but it also means that you get to as well so that you get to assert fully who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really critical component of parenting in a healthy way because you a lot of people especially mothers uh, feel like they have to sacrifice everything for their child that they don't get to assert their opinions and in an effort to give our children autonomy sometimes we erase our own and that's not healthy either Mm -hmm. um so i but again this is new territory for an evangelical like me um, because that's just not the way that I grew up. And even now I see really unhealthy lack of boundary issues in evangelical communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is one way I think we can do much, much better. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking again, as a, as another parent, um, one of, one of the just think one of the things that, that you addressed that is really a, a pragmatic thing that people as parents have to deal with is the idea of discipline. Um, mm. And so you talk, you, you talk about things like corporal punishment and the, the evidence that that is not helpful for the child that mm-hmm. is actually a, damaging to the child. And the, and then you also sort of develop uh, this idea of agency relative to the child uh, being able mm-hmm. to express that. Um, I know that a lot of times people, again, and I am going to continue to to frame this conversation really specifically in the context of people that grew up within evangelical frameworks but are but are departing with some of the parenting models that were given to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, with with that in mind, I mean, a lot in many evangelical circles, corporal punishment, spanking, uh, other other types of punishment are common. Um, what, what do you, um, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? What do you recommend within your book? And, and, and yeah, just, just expound on that a bit. I think the core problem is the, is the hierarchy and the authoritarianism, because if you believe that your job as parents is to control your children Mm-hmm. then you're going to do whatever it means necessary to make that happen. And corporal punishment works um, because it's it's a scare tactic. You, you can manipulate a child because you overpower them with your stature and your strength. Um, and so I think that w- the first thing we have to dismantle is that hierarchy. We have to believe that it is not our job as parents to control our children um, and with evangelicals, a lot of times it's a spiritual mandate, right? We are entrusted by God to discipline our children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's just the core uh, worldview belief that needs to change before we talk about any of the other strategies. Right. But if you're able to change your mind about that and, and situate your responsibility as a parent, as not somebody that controls your children, but somebody who comes alongside your child as a guide, um, then all of a sudden there's alternatives that open up to you and you think, okay, I see, I don't even like the word discipline. I don't think there's ever a need to discipline our children. 
Um, I think that there are misbehaviors and that there are problems that Mm -hmm. come up in life because we're humans and we're imperfect and we live in an imperfect world. And when those things come up, then we can solve these problems together, parent and child. And we work together for a solution that works. And in that process, we're constantly soliciting our children's opinions and their consent over what they think is best for them as well. Like you're on the same team. You're not on opposing teams. You're on the same team. The problem is the problem and you tackle it together. Um, So yeah, I I feel like I'm not gonna talk to somebody whose core conviction is that they have to control their child about spanking because it doesn't matter how many facts I throw their way, how many research um, articles I send, it's not going to change their mind because ultimately they believe that they have to control their child. And that's, that's honestly unjust. It's not treating your child as, as a full human being. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I can convince you that, no, your, your job is to come alongside your children, then I think I can begin to break down. Um, I can begin to convince you that there are tools available in your toolbox besides spanking um, that, that might work. And, and I understand that a lot of parents spank because they, they, they truly are doing what they think is best. Um, and so I want to be empathetic to parents, but I think that I just want people to know that there are other alternatives. And I think if they would be willing to open their minds up to it, um, then why wouldn't you? <laughs> because people don't like to spank. <laughs> it's not good for the parents and it's certainly not good for the child. Mm-hmm. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. One of the, one of the things you mentioned while you were talking about that was was the sense of a child as a you know the the full rights of a of a child essentially, and that is something right. you touch on in the book too. So I. Um, could you talk about that a little bit and the sort of development of because that may be foreign to some people this idea uh, and I I honestly don't know I I don't recall whether it was framed and I had heard it framed or read it framed in the way that you present it in your book about children's rights and how there is actually sort of this movement to formally acknowledge that in different right. uh, in different legislatures and things like that throughout the world. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we have in the United Nations has a declaration of human rights. And it was like, I can't, I think it was maybe 11 years after the declaration of human rights when they signed a declaration of child's rights. So that is already showing a bias that it took them a little while longer to recognize children as human beings. Mm -hmm. And then (laughs) even after that's been declared, the United States still haven't fully signed on to it. Um, so the U.S. is actually quite behind compared to other developing countries in recognizing the full dignity of a child. Um, and ever since I started writing this book and doing the research and just seeing the world through this perspective, I it, it continues to uncover to me how much the world is anti-child. Um, we wouldn't, and, and it's, we call it blind spots for a reason. It's because we don't see it. We don't recognize it. It's an implicit bias because we all think that we love children. You ask anyone on the street, do you love children? And everyone would say, yes, I love children because you would be a really heartless person if you said no. But the reality is that we still in so many ways treat children differently than the way we treat adults, um, and in unfair ways. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So why is that? It's because there's this bias that persists. Um, So we have to be humble um, to listen to children. It's just kind of like when we talk about racism, we say, well, we need to listen to black people. We need to listen to people of color. So they tell us what it's like to live in their body. It's the same thing with children. We have to listen to our children and, and, be willing to accept their version of what it's like to live as a child. 
Um, and then I think if we're willing to do that, we'll realize, oh my goodness, I, I have been treating you in a way that it doesn't honor your full agency. Um, so yeah, it's been eye-opening even for me and it uh, compels me to encourage people to see those, to reveal blind spots to people when I see it. It can be a little bit sticky. The parenting conversation is very controversial, as you can imagine. Right. And, <laughs> and people often accuse you of being, you know, sanctimonious. There's a popular Facebook page called Sanctimami. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah, and it's like full of parents, like making fun of parents who's always judging other people's parenting, which, okay, to be fair, that is obnoxious. <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I do think, um, I do think that, yeah, I want to stand up for justice for children. And when I see it, I would like to call it out and say, Hey, I know this is, uh, you know, a Debbie Downer to raise this, but the way that you're talking about your children right now is dishonoring to them and mm. we should, we should change. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. I want to actually, so for this next sort of segment, what I'd like to do is really talk about the three things that you're supposed to not talk about, <laughs> you know, in polite conversation um, and how they relate to parenting and how they relate to helping raise children. Um, so those, if your mind hasn't already sort of gotten there, are sexuality, politics, and religion. Um, so those are the sort of things that those are things that are important uh, to help develop and guide a child and mm -hmm. sort of give them a, a grounding in order to understand themselves in the world. Um, you know, for whatever reason, those are the things we're not supposed to talk about, even though they're often the most important things in the world. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> and it's important to give that, uh, to give, to address those things and not let, pe not let it, things just fill in the vacuum. Um, right. So one of, so just starting with the topic of sexuality, um, mm -hmm. and actually, you know, I am also going to, uh, I'm going to add a fourth, which is actually sort of gender understanding of gender and, and, and that as well. That's something yeah. that's often not, not mentioned. Um, but, Anyways, I'm self-correcting on the fly here. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think sexuality but, includes gender and gender identity and the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, we may be able to sort of address that under that umbrella. Um, right. So speaking particularly in regards to sexuality and relationships and understanding of one's own uh, sexuality, people that have been grown that grew up evangelical that are now parents – um, they very likely were exposed and part of purity culture, um, right. which has its own sort of talk about raising yourself, talk about like, you know, growing yeah. up. Like there's so hard. <laughs> there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, and there, that's mm -hmm. a reason why it's such an area of focus for for lots of people doing great work uh, mm -hmm. online and, and elsewhere. Um, mm -hmm. But bearing in mind that you know, a lot of parents have bring this particular sort of um, baggage to their own understanding of this big part of being a human being. Mm -hmm. um, what it, are good ways in which they can sort of equip their children to have a, a healthier understanding, a, a better understanding of, of themselves and, and that part of themselves in a way that, that perhaps we were not advantaged to have. Yeah. And I really think there's two separate things that you're talking about here because the baggage part, the reparenting of yourself part, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. because you can have all the right things to say. You can know all the good resources to give to your children. But if you are still filled with shame, um, then that's, that's something that you have to work out, mm -hmm. um, like with a therapist, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I feel like it is two separate conversations. How to dismantle yourself from purity culture, um, 
is is a whole big thing and it's part of self-care and it's part of healing yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but then actually teaching healthy sex ed is it's out, the resources are out there. It's available to you. Um, you have to be able to, um, you know, be well enough, I guess, to, uh, to use those tools for your, for your children. Um, but for sure, it's, you know, knowing the struggle that so many people experience, it's, it's a huge, um, motivation to do better for our kids. Um, and yeah, I think just not bringing shame into the conversation, like leave shame out of all of it and discussing the facts, discussing using correct and, and uh, I always get this word wrong, using correct anatomy parts, um, and also expanding the conver- the sex conversation into the larger conversation that it is, which is that it includes our relationships and topics like intimacy and desire and consent. Like Mm -hmm. all of those exist in so many conversations beyond the birds and the bees talk. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really um, having this fuller, larger ethic um, Mm. that guides the sex conversation. Yeah. uh, I feel like that's that's the one thing I think a lot of parents think, oh, the sex talk is just one talk. No, it's so much more than that. And it begins so much younger than people think it begins. Well, you can talk about consent with little toddlers um, and you can talk about uh, desire with little girls, a three-year-old girl. You can say, you get to have what you want. And that's going to play into her sexuality Right. So many women grow up not realizing that they get to have pleasure (laughs) in Mm. bed. And um, and so it is just this much larger conversation and parenting when it comes to these these issues. Um, And then when it comes to gender and gender identity, I think we're also learning so many new things that is going to shape our parenting um, we're learning how to deconstruct gender binaries and um, expanding the definitions of masculinity and femininity and how that affects the way that we raise our children. It begins with, let's, you know, let's talk about gender reveal parties. Should we really be doing them anymore? How should that look like now in the modern context? Mm-hmm. Um, I think... Yeah, it's hard. Again, it's one of these (laughs) Debbie Downer conversations because everyone loves a cute gender reveal party and and these fun, you know, blue balloons and pink balloons that they release out of boxes. And um, but but I also think it's time uh, knowing what we know about gender binaries, it's time for us to have these conversations and say, should we still be doing these things? And how can we, how should we be raising our boys and girls? What if they're non-binary? What if they're intersex, right? Mm -hmm. Like trans, um, we have to start, uh, changing the way we parent our kids in all of these matters. And so it's, it's difficult because it's not something we grew up knowing about, So it's brand new territory, but it's also exciting. And it's something that we can do together um, in community with other parents who are also concerned about these issues. But, you know, the important thing to remember is how much this benefits all of our kids, right? Like how much better it is, how much healthier it is for our children to have the freedom to be exactly who they are instead of fitting into these boxes, instead of internalizing toxic masculinity mm-hmm. uh, and, and internalizing homophobia. Um, there's just so much potential for goodness, for kindness, for liberation, that we can't afford to not talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Moving on to politics, <laughs> another sort of big, big part of life. Um, mm-hmm. you, you talk in your book about working towards a more sort of just world and, and teaching your children how to pursue justice and understand justice, mm-hmm. including things like racial justice. Uh, and, um, that is something that, that, uh, 
again, going back to what may have been modeled for us in, in evangelical circles, oftentimes mm-hmm. there was sort of one right answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was sort of a, a, a pat answer that was provided for us. Um, mm-hmm. And so many people that are now evangelical reject the answer that was provided for them. Right. Um, and so within the context of that and within the context of uh, bringing up and helping to raise a child in a way that they have a, have a sort of awareness of the injustices in the world, um, right. what, is, what are some of the sort of best, best methods in order to model that and have conversations with children of different ages about those sorts of things? Yeah, there's so many examples now of children who are getting involved in politics um, that it's it's impossible to separate that from the parenting conversation anymore. Um, and a lot of times people who say that politics shouldn't matter are, are the people that policies don't affect as much the privileged people mm-hmm. um, they don't they don't have to talk about politics because their lives are, are not impacted by policies um, and so when we think about children and parenting it's like you think about the Parkland teens and how they've had to get involved in politics because their classmates got killed in school right like it right. directly impacts them and so they're thrusted into the the, the political conversation and the children who are getting involved in climate change. It's like these children are having their eyes open to the fact that their world, their children and their, their grandchildren might actually not survive in this earth because of climate change. Mm -hmm. And so they're having to get involved in politics. Right. Um, And so I think that what we have to get our children to understand is that politics matter to people who are vulnerable. And for children, they're part of that population. Um, they are vulnerable. When it comes to racism, our, cho- our white kids are internalizing racism. Yeah. Our kids of color are internalizing um, hate about their own skin color. Mm-hmm. It does affect them. Um, and so they have to engage in that conversation, not to not that we're wanting to make them political pawns, but so that they have the power to talk about, so that they have the power to describe their own lived experience. And when you have that power to, vocabulary to talk about it, then it helps you know that maybe you can make a difference. Maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Mm. But if you don't even have the vocabulary to talk about it, then you're truly helpless because you're not even able to get a handle on what you feel, right? It's kind of like when we talk about building emotional autonomy and getting in touch with your intuition. Mm -hmm. We want our kids to have vocabulary to describe their emotions, not because... Um, we want them to sound woke <laughs> or anything like that but right. because, it, because it empowers them. It gives them power to then manage it um, and control it somehow um, and to, to dictate, to, to be the master of their own fate, that they get to make a difference. And, and not to say that they have to do it all themselves, but in community, again, in community with others, they can come together, they can gather with their peers and say, hey, maybe we, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Maybe we can make a difference. So I do think the parenting conversation is inextricable from politics. Mm-hmm. I think a, a subsection sort of of this, of this is really another uh, of politics is also sort of economics. Um, and you do talk about uh, sort of how capitalism within your book has an effect mm-hmm. on children. Um, yeah. So what are the what are the ways in which that plays out in the life of a child and um, and how can we sort of again we we t- to what you're saying like we're we're in a very sort of influx moment like mm-hmm. wealth inequalities are just incredible across mm-hmm. the entire world. Um mm-hmm. Those those sorts of statistics are are really 
depressing and upsetting to see yeah. how much how much wealth yeah. is is hoarded by the top one percent throughout the world. Um, and children are also sort of born into the same sort of systems that we find ourselves in as adults of having right. to survive in capitalism. Um, right. So within that context of of really surviving in in this. Uh, late, yeah. capi- late capitalism hellscape that we find ourselves in. <laughs> what mm-hmm. um, what can we do as parents to to walk alongside our kids there and and help them understand the situation that they that right. they may find themselves in as adults later on? I don't know if I use this term in the book, but the idea of market fundamentalism. Uh, I think a lot of times we think about fundamentalism as religious fundamentalism. Mm. Um, and so we have this idea that, well, if maybe we just raise our kids um, without religion whatsoever, then they're safe. Um, and I think what I'm trying to say is that there are fundamentalist forces coming from every which way, even mm. outside of religion. There's the market and the harm that it does. Um, and so I think as parents, our responsibility is to help our children see, um, navigate uh, those influences that are in their lives to reveal uh, that what's often invisible, right? And I think capitalism is one of those things. It's just it's just the way we live life, so we don't think about it consciously. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is influencing you. Um, I talk about the power of advertising in children's lives and how much money is intentionally directed at our children. Um, and so just helping them be aware of it. Uh, I, I don't, it's above my pay grade to know how exactly to dismantle capitalism. But for me, I think I want to empower my kids to at least see the forces that are at work in society that is playing a large part in shaping the decisions that they make um, and who they are. And and again, of course, I also want to empower them to resist it. So in my book, I talk about simplifying their lives or decluttering the Marie Kondo. This is before the Marie Kondo craze. Right, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, the, um, the Konmari method and, and all yeah. that. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But um, yeah, just those ideas of, well, how can we develop an identity in our children that resists this constant spending and uh, finding your worth tied up with what you do and how much money you make and um, and all these things. So, again, it's a conversation starter. We're we're again facing uncharted territory so how can we begin to come together as parenting communities to figure out how to um, protect our children and empower them to resist it? Um, I, I think I use this example in the book of this idea that my kids might be playing with toys that are made by like child labor somewhere across the world. Like that's really haunting to me um because here there's a privileged child who has too too many toys um in their playroom and they are being oppressed quote unquote by the tyranny of the market and finding that that they're never satisfied right like children who get toys all the time are never satisfied they're always craving the next hit of the next new toy. Um, and then at the same time, there are these children halfway across the world who are experiencing a different kind of oppression. And yeah, it's just, it's haunting to me how much we're trapped in the system and, and the injustice of it all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, uh, what that sort of reminds me of, there's, there's a saying that Marshall McLuhan, he's a media historian. Um, he says that environments aren't visible. Um, mm, and right. that uh, oftentimes I think of that when I think of like capitalism and, and the, as you said, like a lot of times oh. it, it keeps us in a certain class. And even mm-hmm. though the idea of social mobility is part of capitalism, um, mm-hmm. it's often not 
the reality for so many people. Right, right. Yeah. And, and again, I don't want to like add all these things to our children to make them feel like they're responsible for changing the world in all these grand ways that adults haven't figured out how to change. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they are so stressed out already by, by their world um, and their generation. Um, so I don't want to add to that, but I, I just want to say that, yeah, making the environment more visible hopefully gives them more power so they don't feel so helpless and powerless um, in the face of these systems that they're trapped in. Mm-hmm. I think that being conscious and being aware is an important part of moving about in this world. Yeah. And that's something that we, we can give to our children to give them the tools of investigation um, and critical engagement. Yeah. I want to close out our conversation by, by talking about spirituality. Um, it is something that is part of the the personal history of, of most listeners of this show. Um, I would imagine of uh, people that are, that are evangelical, and that means that they have the sort of baggage that they have of of being brought up in a faith tradition that they no longer practice, and I think that that presents a sort of it you, it brings you to a crossroads no matter no matter what no matter sort of how self self aware we've talked a lot about awareness how sort right. of oh aware or conscious you are of that sort of crossroads yeah as a as a parent um cuz you have mm-hmm. to sort of decide whether you want to include any sort of spirituality in the life of your child or in the upbringing of your child um right. and you know that is not a not a small part of life, obviously, because right. it was really formative for us, right? Um, right. It had it had impacts that were good or bad or both, um, mm-hmm. and so it's not a a small decision. Um, okay. And I know this is sort of a longer preamble to a question than I usually do, but I mean, even for myself, like I was in different sort of parts of Christianity um, that I ended up leaving. And now we attend an Episcopal church, which Mm -hmm. like was sort of as sort of a happenstance thing, but it's worked out and been sort of healing for us. I'm speaking Mm -hmm. about me and my wife. Um, And I can speak more specifically for myself. Um, And it's something that we are sort of, comfortable having our child brought up in and we won't necessarily be as dogmatic about it um, and or stringent about things as as things go on however um, that's just a sort of personal anecdote to (laughs) to color this conversation um, because that's something I I I bring to this and it's something that that I thought about while reading your book too is Mm -hmm. and you have talked about like I've I've seen you you share online sort of about this idea of us not giving our children our baggage, um, right? Which is hard. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, it's it not. It's difficult. hard. It's hard to not not give them your own sort of prejudices or 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 that sort right. of thing. Um, the reason I the reason I say that is because I do advocate for nurturing the spirituality of our children, um, because first of all, I do think that children are spiritual, mm-hmm. and that often the world squashes that um, autonomy in them, um, and so does fundamental religion, mm-hmm. fundamentalist religion. Um, but another reason is is all these things that we've been talking about, all the stresses that our children have to deal with that we didn't have to deal with. They have to deal with climate change. They have to deal with increasing gap between the poor and the rich. They have to deal with the economy. There's there's their lives. They're busier than ever. Um, uh, their lives are just filled with a lot of stress, and and I think spirituality is a way for them 
to be able to manage surviving in this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's it's a gift and a tool for them. Um, so I, I what I want to do is offer a healthy spirituality because I don't want to repeat the fundamentalism of my upbringing. Um, and so that's that's what I put forth in the book. How can we raise our children with healthy spirituality? And some of those things are, like not, you know, honoring their beliefs, letting them decide what they want to believe in, giving them tools from multiple denominations or even multiple religions, exposing them to spiritual multilingualism, um, and always giving them the agency to, um, to explore their own spirituality, learning from our children. Like those are all ways that we can avoid fundamentalism, but still giving them that tool, like allowing them to exercise their spirituality according to their own life circumstances and their temperaments. Um, and so that's, that's why I think because so many of us who grew up with toxic religion were were so triggered by spiritual language and by faith practices that we're afraid to pass that on to our kids. But I, I do think it's doing them a disservice. And also, honestly, I think it makes them more, more vulnerable. Um, I've heard from so many people who stumble into fundamentalism in their teen years And they say, well, we didn't grow up with religion, so we didn't know anything about it. Mm. And all of a sudden, they go to youth group and they experience all this love and they fall right into a cult. Um, That happens a lot. (laughs) So I feel like if we can equip our children (laughs) to be spiritually literate, then they can at least navigate and they can spot um, toxic religion. They're like, oh, this is not this is what I this is not what I know to be healthy. Um, and they are less vulnerable yeah. to that kind of stuff. So, so that's why I do advocate for raising children with spirituality. And, and my definition of spirituality is very broad, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. for me, okay, to be honest, like for me, it's, I have a lot of spiritual trauma myself. Um, and so it is, I don't take my children to church. It, I think at this point in my life, it would be very difficult for me to have to overcome some of those triggers. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I, I think I can allow, I, I have to compartmentalize. Like that is my spiritual trauma. That's not my children. My children don't have spiritual trauma right? So mm. they can receive some of that language in a way that I can't. Um, and so I need to recognize that and give them that freedom to explore. And of course, I'm also sharing my stories of my, my trauma. I think that's important. Um, but yeah, kind of not putting my baggage on my kids is something that I'm constantly trying to navigate. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's that's so important. I I I yeah. I'm in heated agreement with you <laughs> about <laughs> about that. Uh yeah, cuz cuz I I I just I agree. <laughs> I don't uh-huh. That was very well said. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Well, Cindy, I'm so glad to have been able to talk to you a bit about your book and have you share about your own your own experiences as a parent and as as a your own person navigating the world and i want to thank you for for writing it and sort of giving people a including myself like a a different sort of perspective in which to consider the sorts of decisions and philosophies that they bring to parenting thank you so much for having me blake it's always a joy to talk to you where can people find you online and where can they find your book? My book is sold, available wherever books are sold. Um, and you can find me at cindywongbrandt.com um, and you can find all my social links from my website. Awesome. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me, joining me today. Thank you. 